Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a center for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented in July 2019 at the Biennial Conference on Catholicism, Literature, and the Arts, organized in partnership by the Center for Catholic Studies, the University of Notre Dame, and Ushaw College. The following lecture was given by Professor Patricia Waugh, professor in the Department of English at Durham University, and is entitled Muriel Sparks's Imagination, Creativity as Spiritual Exercise. Thank you, Stephen, for that very generous introduction. And, um, thank you very much for inviting me as well. It's a great honour, and um, I'm looking forward to talking about Muriel Sparks. Um, in fact, it was David Lodge um, who introduced me to Muriel Sparks um, a long time ago, um, at the end of the 70s, when I was working on the PhD that became the book on metafiction, and he was frequently um, popping off to Rome in the way that supervisors could in those days, <laughs> um, to go and talk to and attend the rather glamorous parties of Muriel Spark. <laughs> so I started hearing about Muriel Spark quite early on, and she's kind of popped up on and off, and I've been interested in her on and off for many years and written on her in different ways. Um, and it struck me that she's a good um, subject for this um, title, Legacies and Revivals, because what I want to talk about today really is um, the sort of fate of the Catholic spark um, and the way in which, um, how, to what extent do writers control their own legacies and to what extent do current critical preoccupations shape what we think they are when we read them. And Spark was very keen to control her legacy in all kinds of ways. Um, but perhaps she couldn't quite have imagined um, that some of the preoccupations that she had in the 50s, and that actually were not really recognized by her critics at the time, have returned now in our modern critical context. And, and interestingly, I mean, I'm, I'm quite interested in phenomenology. And one of the areas I think that Spark was interested in, and um, it was not really picked up and hasn't been, um, she was very interested in Christian phenomenology and Christian existentialism of the mid 20th century. And saw it as a way, really, of not only reviving art, but art's relationship to um, the Catholic faith. So that's really what I'm going to talk about. So it's about these kind of hermeneutic terms and how revivals happen. And sometimes we realize we've been reading a writer and had a complete blind spot. And then you know a new frame will open up and we'll start seeing what we haven't seen before. Um, so I've, I've tried to, to, to write this um, with an eye to the fact that some people will know Spark and some people may not know Spark so well. Um, but in 1953, Spark was preparing to enter the Catholic faith. Coinciding with this life-changing decision was another momentous transition from being a writer of books on romanticism and a minor poet 
So embarking on a career to become one of the post-war period's most innovative and prolific writers of fiction. And over her lifetime, she published 22 novels, numerous stories, numerous essays, journalism. Um, but she always insisted that even though she became a novelist, she remained a poet, and that she was looking to create a new poetic shape for the novel. And I think from the beginning, it was seen that in some way her um, conversion to Catholicism was somehow bound up with this transition, although not in the ways that I'm going to go on to suggest, perhaps. The moment of radical transition of this life-changing choice um, was, however, even more existentially disorienting. She was working on a review, a new production of C.S. Eliot's play, The Confidential Clerk, and she was planning to write a book on Eliot. And she started to believe that Eliot was communicating secretly with her, sending her covert messages through the play, <laughs> which in her autobiography and elsewhere, she refers to as my hallucinations. Well, her first novel that was published just three years later explores this intertwined personal experience of conversion to Catholicism and to the career of novelist, as well as her experience of hallucinations. And she invents a character, Caroline Rose, who is also going through um, the experience of conversion, enters a Catholic retreat, St. Philomena's, and starts to hear voices. Um, she's writing, she's working on her soul, and she's also working on a book entitled Form in the Novel. But by the end, she's writing her first novel, and rather quixotically, the what, it's the one that we're now reading. Um, Spark found a way through the novel to sort of distance and objectify her experience of that heightened significance in Eliot's words that came to take on an actual presence, a voice that she heard, as Eliot's words seemed to speak to her directly and, and personally, not from within, but from outside, through the literary device of personification. So in the novel, she invents Caroline hears a typing ghost that clatters out her thoughts, um, but before Caroline's thought them. And this voice iterates the thoughts first externally and then reiterates them as a flow of thought in inner speech, but in both cases using the mode of free and direct discourse, which is the kind of basic mode of the novel, really, um, from the 19th century. It's a mode that um, combines third, the third-person voice and the first-person voice. And it's as if a third-person voice has already inhabited Caroline's thoughts, as if there's a principle of alterity at the heart of her most private being that's trying to confiscate ownership of herself. So she, she, she reads this as a kind of battle. First of all, she thinks she might be mad. Then she wonders if she's possessed. And then she comes to the conclusion that there's another author at a higher metaleptic level who's always already writing her as a character into a phony plot. So it's a classic metafiction, in other words. Um, but it's this uniqueness of the free and direct voice in fiction, its capacity to entangle narrators and characters that are normally positioned at different diegetic and therefore ontological levels, the author's outside, not usually inside the fiction that mixes up the idea of reality um, 
and opens up perplexing ontological possibilities. It's a novel that seems to be both a Kunstler roman, a portrait of the development of an artist, and a novel that pushes the boundaries of realist convention and empirical possibility, opening up an experience of reading too that suggests how our fundamental modalities, our mental kind of modalities of intentionality, perception, seeing the world around us, imagination, pulling the world into our mind, and memory, bringing the past through recollection back into the mind, are entangled in ways that mean that our fundamental senses of experience, of time, of space, of causality, can shift and open up other possible worlds. Well, Caroline's comforters, like those of Job, and like those in Yeats's poem of 1913, The Realists, and in, in, in this poem of Yeats, the Job figure is the modern mythopoeic poet who's been marginalized in a culture of fact-mongering and ratiocination. All of these comforters fail to understand and grasp her suffering as something beyond reason, beyond argument, that it's a test of faith as endurance not to be explained by psychoanalysis or any other kind of modern rationalizing argument. Well, the early critics of Spark, who started writing in the 70s, David Lodge, Frank Hermode, Peter Kemp, uh, Malcolm Bradbury, read her as a writer who discovered her comic, or what Joyce calls the Joker serious mode, as a writer, through a, re a leap of faith realized as a twist of plot. And they viewed her originality less as one of her comic satiric stance towards the fallen world, because she seemed to them to be writing in the tradition of war, than in this formal transmutation into the very shape and structure of fiction of a world horizon shadowed by the four last things. So they read her art as one in which um, an ingenious exploration of the technical possibilities of narrative um, of free and direct discourse, and particularly of narrative prolepsis, is manipulated to foreground the Kierkegaardian insight that life is lived forwards, but only ever understood backwards. And realizing in her novels, in the mortal world, um, sorry, I'll stop for a minute, shall I? <laughs> okay, I think this is the um, intervention of the in eternal into time that I was just about to talk about. Um, but the, the idea that faith connects time and eternity. Um, interestingly, um, and this wasn't known then, uh, Kierkegaard, Spark was reading Kierkegaard in the 40s, and this is completely um, missed by her early critics. Um, in the earliest English translations. Um, but his writings had already been taken up by Christian and Catholic thinkers in the phenomenological tradition, such as Karl Jaspers, who interestingly, of course, wrote in 1913 um, the, his great um, psychopathology, which was um, an attempt to really understand the mind of the mad, the mind of, of the mentally ill and the deluded. Um, but also Gabriel Marcel, 
as well as Jacques Maritain, um, who was also a key influence on Eliot. Um, but I think these early critics didn't really explore Sparks' intellectual kind of sources. They were more interested in these formalist games with fiction, and they weren't very historical in their approach to literature. Um, they were particularly interested in um, the way that Spark gave away her endings near the beginning of her novels. And it, they, to them, it seemed a way of flaunting the fact that the author knows the ending, the characters don't. So it kind of rehearses this Kierkegaardian perception. But it suggests that there's a higher being. Uh, every time you reach a level uh, where you think you've reached the ultimate reality, it collapses and a, a higher level steps in. It's a fundamental metafictional kind of um, technique. But Caroline's thoughts are heard by her, by her and the reader before she thinks them. In the next novel, Memento Mori, the deaths are already foretold before they happen of the elderly who receive anonymous phone calls telling them they will die. In the prime of Miss Jean Brodie um, in, in 1961, we learn early on of Miss Brodie's betrayal, the various fates of her set that run counter to her attempts to control their destinations, and the identity of her betrayer. Sandy Stranger, who by the end of the novel is now Sister Helena, author of a spiritual tract, The Transfiguration of the Commonplace. By the time of the driver's seat, ten years later, the dis alienated and disturbed Lees takes over the driver's seat of authorship, and she plots her own narrative as a murderer mystery why done it, as she explains it, with herself its victim. So she's a woman who breaks out of a confining existence in a, in a kind of office routine, an isolated and lonely life. And she sets out to get herself murdered um, and, by the, and, and to identify her murderer. And by the end, um, she does indeed get herself murdered, although not quite in the way that she'd wanted to. Um, and she lays a trail of clues throughout the novel towards this inevitable and prematurely reported violent death. And we learn very early on that, that uh, we, we're given a newspaper report of the murder, so we know that this is going to happen. So she always gives away the endings um, before we get there. This flaunting of plot as the uh, anticipation of a retrospection was um, particularly taken up by Frank Commode, who was one of the early um, promoters of Sparks' work, um, in his book, The Sense of an Ending where he looks at um, eschatological sects and talks about why we need to think, why we need to believe we know when the end of the world will arrive, because he says it's endings that give meaning to everything that comes before. They, they offer a concordance, he says. Um, men in the Mideast, he says, long for certainty, and they don't have it. And by positing an end and positing the end of the world, and then really back into time, um, you have a sense of, a teleological sense of meaning and purpose. So, and from Commode, um, this provides a kind of consolation in the midst of uncertainty. But he then goes on to applaud Spark because he says after the, after the fictions come to generate very quickly into myths, and after the myth is a final solution, you know, the, she's writing in the 50s, She's seen, along with other writers like Iris Murdoch and William Golding, as writers who recognise the responsibility of art to flaunt the fictionality of human plots, 
the self-consciousness of artifice to ironize and reveal their provisionality. Well, this is the earliest picture of Spark as a Catholic writer. It was clever and insightful, but now seems somehow thin. Um, too abstract, too hung up on technical devices of the novel and structural narratology, rather than grasping her abiding interest in the relation of art to experience. It kind of misses something. Um, and I, I mean, I was taken with this reading when I was, you know, 21, um, as you are <laughs> at the age of 21. Um, and then you start to feel what's happened to the human element as you get older. Um, it, it ignores Spark's own account of her conversion, as she says, no blinding revelation, but a choice, a leap into faith. Corresponding, she said, to what I've always felt, what I've always known, and what I've always believed. So it wasn't a sudden kind of turnaround. Nobody at the time either commented on the entanglement of her conversion with what she called her nervous breakdown, or how this played out in relation to the art of the novel, beyond the structural play with narrative. But the experience seems to have led her to begin to reflect intensely on the power of the human imagination to create and bring to mind feelings of presence so that they take on a kind of external existence that challenge or vie with external perception and therefore blur distinctions between seeing with the external eye and hearing with the mind's eye and inner voice. She was interested then in how things of the imagination may take on qualities of the perceptual build an inner sensory world that can dislocate the here and the now, the then and the there. I mean, when we're taken over by memory, as she'd learned from Proust, um, we're in that memory as if it's in the now. Our sense of temporality is disturbed. And obviously, normally, we're in control of that process. But if you think of people suffering from um, post-traumatic stress disorder, of course, they have no control over it. There's a trigger. There's a noise, and they're back on the battlefield. They're in that moment. So this relationship between perception, imagination, and memory is a complex one. And she starts, I think, to think about that. Also, I think about how um, the aesthetic, um, as the medium of the imagination, can build an inner world, but also encounter and build a relationship with God. And I'm going to come on to that in a minute. It can also, of course, lead to the terrifying experience of madness, where distinctions, as in post-traumatic stress disorder, distinctions between imagination, perception, and memory can seem to dissolve entirely, leaving the, the sufferer not only existentially, but also ontologically adrift. What time are they in? What place is it? Um, so she became, I think, through this personal experience, very aware. Of, of this power. She read Eliot, and she read Eliot's um, account of what he called the auditory imagination. And I think she took this on and thought always of her own imagination as auditory. She said from an early age, she listened. Um, she was brought up in Edinburgh. Um, she attended um, a school um, that is represented in uh, the Prime of Mischief Brodie as kind of Calvinistic in spirit. Her mother was English. Her father was a Russian Jew. 
Um, she spoke a kind of middle-class English that she, um, that she got from her mother. Um, and from early on, I think, she became aware of, of, of differences in voice and sound and idiolect. Um, and she was a listener. She said she was always tuning in. She remembers listening in to radio broadcasts during the war. And she brings them into a lot of her novels. Um, she was always tuning in, listening externally and then internally, rejoicing in the physical properties of sound and the human voice. And she saw that as the source of her poetic sensibility. The sonority of the poetic as a kind of language that takes joy in listening to itself listening. Penelope Jardine, her long-time companion, noted that how something in the air, a felt presence, was the phrase that Muriel used to explain how things come to us. That certain or almost certain feeling of something's existence that most artists know when creating, it must be there. How else did they think it? In encounters with music, art, and poetry from an early age, Spark wrote of a definite something beyond myself. This sensation especially took hold of me when I was writing. I was convinced that sometimes I had access to knowledge that I couldn't possibly have gained through normal channels. And it was this sense of a kind of inner voice speaking that was not her own, like Caroline Rose's in um, uh, The Comforters. In a late essay on the French novelist Georges Simenon, she wrote admiringly of his capacity to work himself into what he called a state of grace or trance before he could enter the novelistic mode. And her early essay, My Conversion, describes her mind at this time teeming with disorder. But how shortly after came a sense of a kind of grace. It was like getting a new gift, finding her own voice as a writer. Well, these <coughs> sparks, excuse the pun, began to fly in the 1990s. Um, and Spark was taken up by a new generation of literary critics to become a kind of poster girl for the new identity politics. For my, I don't know how, what she made of this. I think she was a bit bemused by it all. Um, for minority rights, for a Scottish literary renaissance, for Jewish identity, she was half Jewish, for hybridity, for cosmopolitanism, for the writer in exile, and her Catholicism was now treated as an obstruction to understanding her work. So it kind of gets shunted aside. Um, this is what I mean about legacies and how critics can rewrite writers. Uh, and I remember this annoying me at the time. I was particularly annoyed <laughs> by a collection of essays called Theorizing Muriel Spark, um, edited by Martin McQuillan. I think he, he's a critic. I shouldn't even say his name because he should just be erased. Um, <laughs> And this came out in 2002, and it seemed as if he, he just set out, he tried to sort of, his whole agenda was to say, the Catholicism doesn't matter. This is what you're really important for, you know, the revival of um, Jewish identity, hybridity, various kinds of politics. Um, as if the two things cannot coexist. Um, so here's, here's an example from McQuillan. <clears throat> this is the bit that made me bristle. Um, one of the things he says, this is an interview that's transcribed in the book. One of the things he says, I find distressing, distressing about much spark criticism, 
is the way it tries to pigeonhole you as a Catholic writer. <clears throat> if you understand the Pena Catechism, you understand everything about Muriel Spark. Well, Spark replies, I am a Catholic, and I'm a, a believing Catholic. This is bound to colour my narrative, inform my narrative approach, although I don't set out to be a Catholic apologist in any form. Then he goes on to ask her if she's a modernist or a postmodernist. Um, and she replies, well, maybe postmodernist. They say postmodernist mostly, whatever that means. You can imagine her crisp, <laughs> crisply kind of. <clears throat> Do you know what that means, prompts McQuillan. Well, she says, I think it means there is another dimension which is a bit creepy, supernatural. <laughs> not supernatural, but not necessarily consequential. I always think that causality is not chronology. One thing doesn't necessarily lead to another inevitable thing, although it does lead to something else in actual fact. <laughs> That's classic Spark. <clears throat> well, what does Spark mean, sort of postmodern? A clear, perhaps, lies in the reference to causality. Postmodern relativism is hardly to be associated with an attempt to reinstate the teleological or Aristotelian concept of a final cause, but it did much to challenge the idea that everything is reducible to the kind of purely efficient and mechanical causality that is at the heart of positivism and scientific epistemologies. One thing doesn't necessarily follow another, that is, unless you buy into the kind of calculative ratiocination that begins in dualistic thinking, is laid down as method in science, and begins insidiously to direct moral outlooks as scientism. And this was precisely what these thinkers um, and intellectuals that Spark drew on, uh, Marie-Fin, Marcel, etc., were concerned with at this moment in the middle of um, the, the, the 20th century. Um, and it got caught up, of course, in the famous so-called two cultures debate um, in the 60s. For although her early critics noted her Kierkegaardian flaunting of plot, they failed to explore how her engagement with the phenomenological thinkers of her time produced an air of concern to lay bare the peculiar evacuatedness, the absences of at the heart of the modern world. A world whose assumptions she felt was so grounded in scientific naturalism that it had become a new metaphysics of materialism, explaining everything about us and everything about the way our world works. And Ian Hacking has more recently called this a kind of inverted Cartesianism, um, where, where um, the materi materialism becomes the ground of, of, of everything, um, leaving the self, the existential subject as a kind of disembedded, lone and naked will. It's actually Iris Murdoch in her book on Sartre who describes it that way. And they were friends, Spark and Murdoch. So these critics didn't really recognize Spark's preoccupation from her very first short story, The Seraph and the Zambezi, which I'll come on to talk about in a minute, with the possibility of art not only as laying bare the evacuatedness of this world in that tradition of comic satire. Um, but of art as reintroducing into the world the possibility of wonder, plenitude, and presence. And this word means a lot of things, I think, in, in her work. Um, 
to me, she says, being Catholic is part of my human existence. And I think that word existence is important um, because it is a reference, I think, to the idea of, of existence um, as in Christian existentialism, which I'll, I'll, I'll say a little bit about. One of her characters in The Bachelors um, <clears throat> um, sorry, one of the characters in The Bachelors who, who says that phrase to me, being Catholic is part of my uh, human existence. Well, I think Spock doesn't believe that art can bring a direct relation with God. And in that, she, she's like Eliot. I think um, the first lecture we heard made reference to that. Art needs to know its limitations. Hence, her novels have this sense of their own provisionality as fiction, as artifice. But for her, the aesthetic draws on a process of creativity that opens out the self phenomenologically and ontologically beyond the confines of realism and empiricism, of this kind of scientific outlook. In an essay on the Book of Job, which is at the centre of a lot of her fiction, she writes of its wonderful hypnotic power as poetry. Its capacity, she says, to shift the ground from reason to emotion. And by shifting the ground from reason to emotion, it gives life a chance, she says. Okay, so I'm going to now say a bit about how she deals with absence and then come on to this idea of presence, the two kind of aspects of her work. So one is a kind of critique, a sense, a laying bare of what is absent in the world, as she sees it, and then a sense of what, how art can um, bring a remedy, uh, um, open up the world to, to ontological possibility. Spark sees the paradox that if the eternal God comes into existence through time, then from the perspective of embodied, existence, of embodied existence, God cannot exist if faith is withdrawn. It is only because we believe in God that God exists from the perspective of the world or existence. And that's kind of central to Christian existentialism. But from the perspective of eternity, he continues to be. And you can read that back in um, also to these tricks, these tricks with endings and giving away the endings and suggesting that there is a kind of creator outside the text. This colours her presentation of absence as a world in which God has withdrawn, in which faith has disappeared, in which wonder, astonishment um, has faded, as the world is increasingly underpinned by a ratiocinative metaphysics. And what she does, I think, is she brings into fictional being in her various novels a universe built on a reductio ad absurdum of mechanistic principles, a universe resting on a kind of sociobiological and Hobbesian epistemology that reduces the human to an elaborate kind of machine. And you can see this in a lot of um, comic writers. Um, I mean, Bergson talked about it. Ward's fiction works with this kind of um, sense of the world or his early comic fiction, anyway. Um, but in presenting her characters in their mechanized self and other understanding, she, she exaggerates it in order to estrange or disengage us from that 
form of disengagement or disembedding. So she exaggerates it so that we notice it. Because her sense is, we're so um, normatized to this kind of thinking that we don't even see it. And, and, and art is there to make us kind of see, to open up the world. It's a world that Heidegger, another phenomenologist, of course, referred to as the age of the world picture. So instead of being in the world, we kind of stand outside it and gaze on it and explain it. Um, but we lose our sense of being embodied and embedded in it. And she sees that as, as one of the problems of the world. So she wants to lay bare a metaphysical infrastructure that's normally so taken for granted that it and its effects remain largely unnoticed and unobserved, but infiltrate our lives in many ways. The reader's experience of the world that's built through the frame of such fictional methods is a disturbing and uncanny one. The world, these worlds seem familiar yet displaced. They're almost realist, but not quite. They're seemingly postmodern, but not. But in all of them, something central seems missing, something whose recovery might constitute, as Lise puts it in the driver's seat, not really a presence, the lack of an absence. That's what it is. She says that's what she's looking for. Um, and I think she's kind of a, a sort of Baudelarian heroine who is seeking death in the absence of faith. And I think Spark had read Eliot's 1930 essay on Baudelaire, where he talks about the modern world being one of a kind of fragmented Danteism, he called it, where um, because we cannot, um, faith is no longer something lived and embodied, um, so because of the lack of vitality in the world, we seek sensation. And Lise is a sensation seeker in the ultimate sense. She's, she, instead of just committing suicide, she goes out looking for a murderer to, to kill her. What Sartre called ipsaity, and he derives the term from Karl Jaspers, is, is a feeling of self-presence, of being there, of being a subjective centre, comfortably held in and part of the world. So assumed that it goes unnoticed, and, unless or until it's no longer there. And that's what she takes away. What's missing for Lise, and it's a very kind of scary book. In fact, she said she terrified herself writing it. Um, it's her favourite of her novels. What's missing for Lee's and for Spark is a consequence of this metaphysics of, of materialism, as I'm calling it, the underpinnings of modernity, is the comfortable sense of self-presence, of being held in and part of a world that feels meaningful. Lee's is there, but without being present, and the world is there, but seems to have no presence. Such a world takes on a strange and disturbing sense of what Karl Jaspers had referred to as Wahnstimmung. Um, By that he means a kind of delusory atmosphere where nothing's quite real. Um, and um, it's a sort of dark space. And the whole poetic organization of the driver's seat, and it, it, it's poetically realized through imagery, um, is, is a kind of rhythm of containment and explosion. Um, it's um, so that the human is reduced to a kind of combustion engine that's on the point of, of explosion. I mean, Lise is an hysteric and she is about to um, dissolve. It's a world where human touch has disappeared, a world of um, plate glass windows, 
um, international airports, apartments, shopping malls, and hotels. Lee's constantly checks that she's not lost not lost touch. She keeps handling and touching parcels. She buys these parcels, uh, she buys these objects and she's dropping them as she goes along as clues that, that, to reconstruct her murder later. And she's constantly taking them out and touching them. Um, and then ritualistically placing them back in her suitcase, her handbag, her zipper bag, and then taking them out again. So there's this containment and um, evacuation that goes on all the way through. She walks through a department store <clears throat> of electrical appliances, nodding toys, and the paraphernalia of modern living. And she strokes the wooden skis in the sports department and kind of handles its natural feel. In the first line of the novel, she frantically tears off a dress. She's buying a very bright dress so that she'll stand out. Um, because she wants to be recognized for the reconstruction of, of the murder. But when she learns that the material doesn't stain, in other words, <laughs> she tears it off <laughs> and rushes out the top, sort of shrieking. Um, late in the day, she looks through the window of an empty and abandoned cafe with its chairs and tables stacked on the black and white marble squares of the floor. And she seems to be staring at an honor world like the strange museum of a surrealist painting. That, that looking into the cafe is also, I think, a, a scene taken from uh, Sartre's being a nothing, but um, that's just a speculation. <laughs> so close to it in the description. This moment is the only moment in the novel when Lise is touched. She looks at the empty cafe and she recognizes in the world something she can't feel in herself, something that expresses and seems to stand for a kind of objective correlative for all her own unrealized and unfelt lonely grief. Um, so Spark deliberately moves from her removes from her fictional worlds, and especially in these minimalist early and middle novels, the tacit and invisible threads that serve to bind selves to historical worlds, and which weave the texture of the realist novel with its psychological depth, its temporal and spatial anchorage, and its close and multi-perspectival observations of behavior. Instead, she presses to a limit this characteristic dualist mode of modernity as an experience of the world and a relationship to it as a world picture. The, the feeling that one is somehow outside the frame of the world, looking on, or that the frame of the picture, if one manages to crawl inside or under the net, is in turn experienced as inside another picture where other observers look on watching. It's a kind of paranoid universe. Um, <clears throat> well, this, this technique of kind of reductio ad absurdum that's at the heart of the satiric comedy arose from a conviction that Spark began to express in the early 50s, just before her conversion, she was reading Proust and she wrote an essay called The Religion of an Agnostic, a Sacramental View of the World um, in the Writing of Proust. And in it she said, um, and I think she starts at this point to see that art can rejuvenate faith as well as um, a new mode of the aesthetic. It could be abundantly demonstrated, this is on the handout, that present day Christian creative writing, that which is most involved in an attempt to combat materialism reflects a materialism of its own. 
This takes the form of a dualistic attitude towards matter and spirit. They are seen too much in moral conflict, where the spirit triumphs by virtue of its disembodiment. This is really an amoral conception of the spirit. So in other words, she's saying we can't remedy this by thinking of art as spirit, because that leaves the dualism intact. What, what art has to do is, is, what art can do is collapse that dualism and bring the two together. And amoral is a strong word. So she's thinking you know, of the possibility of a new art and its relation to um, her growing interest in Catholicism before her conversion. She's also interested in that moment. Um, she starts reading um, medieval mysticism and becomes interested in Christian and also Jewish spirituality. Um, and I wonder whether this is a point related to what I said at the beginning, whether it's because we're now in a moment of a return to an interest in phenomenology, having been through deconstruction and post-structuralism and textualism, and we're kind of back to the body and we're back to affect. <laughs> We've rediscovered phenomenology, and maybe we can now more easily see these things in her writing that seem to have, early critics seem to have been completely blind to. And it's interesting how that happens when you return to a writer, um, when your frames, you know, and your life experience has changed. Um, I mean, Stephen's just had a baby, and I remember, <laughs> I remember when I was pregnant, I just thought, oh, the world's full of pregnant women, and I'd never <laughs> noticed this before. <laughs> um, well, the, in the period leading to the breakdown um, and the conversion and the first novel, Spark was editing Newman's letters reading Eliot, and she was aware of his engagement with the writing of Jacques Maritain. Her job as secretary of the Poetry Society led to a friendship with G.S. Fraser, who was the translator of the Catholic convert and phenomenologist Gabriel Marcel, and Fraser had translated his book The Mystery of Being um, in 1950, which was written in this tradition of Christian phenomenological thinking, and especially drew on Kierkegaard, interestingly, and on Karl Jaspers, who also, of course, was the pupil of um, Edmund Husserl. Um, when Barbara Vaughan in the Mandelbaum Gate, and this is a novel that's trying, where she's trying to work out her identity, her, the relationship between her Jewish heritage and her Catholic faith, um, written in 1965, and its central character, Barbara Vaughan, insists that either religious faith penetrates everything in life or it doesn't. Spark is echoing the central insight of this tradition explored by Marcel, this idea, this sense, at the center of Marcel's book, that God exists only for those who exist, and if an existing individual loses faith or has no faith, then God is not. But from the viewpoint of eternity, God is what he is, mysterious and beyond our rational perception. Um, and it's really also the lesson of the comforters. Father Jerome says to Caroline Rose in the novel, I am who I am, you are who you are. Um, rational argument isn't going to tell you what you are. Um, well, what connects Eliot's critique of modernity with the Catholic phenomenology of the mid-century it's his preoccupation, I think, with dissociation of sensibility. And this enters his work early on, in 1921, in the essay on the metaphysicals, 
But he elaborated on it in the Clark Lectures of 1926, which is his most kind of extensive critique of Cartesian dualism. Maritain's The Philosophy of Art was translated and published in 1923, but it was extended and retranslated in 1949 as Art and Scholasticism. Central to its argument is the notion that, an, an art, that art is embodied as well as embedded in the world. An art withdrawn from its historical moment, he said, would be the suicide of an angel through forgetfulness of matter. Um, in other words, this is what Sparks getting at when she says creative writing can't separate the body and the spirit. It's, it's, it's art. The aesthetic is, is to join them. And, and this sense of the Book of Job as, as this great poem, this great hypnotic poem um, that brings emotion, um, that articulates the emotion, the sense of being yourself. So for Maritain, art is not a vision that resides in the angelic mind, aloof from history, but a practice thoroughly stained with the dye of the real. And Spark always insisted that her perception of the Catholic acceptance of matter was central to her conversion. For at the back of the incarnation, the belief in the resurrection of the body and the meaning of the Eucharist is Aquinas' understanding, and she was reading Aquinas also at this time, derived from Aristotelian hylomorphism of the paradoxical reality of the soul, that it is in the body, yet contains rather than being contained by it. So again, these metaphors of containing and containment, not the, the, the containing and uncontainment of the driver's seat, but this paradoxical kind of relation that she's interested in, and this play with frames in her novels and with diegetic levels that reflect those paradoxes. For a writer much preoccupied with the problems and perils of containment and being inside and outside of plots, the attractions of this paradox are evident. But it also provides a perspective on and a different way of thinking about the consequences of the Cartesian as it displaces this tradition of hylomorphism to set up the intellectual frame of modernity. The reason that for Spark, as for Maritain, art does not reside in the angelic mind aloof from and removed from history is because, in Maritain's words, it is subject in a soul which is the substantial form of a living body and which, by the natural necessity in which it finds itself of learning and becoming perfect, slowly and with difficulty, makes the animal it animates a naturally political animal. By its subject and its roots, it belongs to a time and a country. So this is partly what incensed me with the Martin McQuillan <laughs> idea that in order to perceive the political spark, the historical spark, um, you've got to kind of throw out the Catholic spark. And, I, I, and if you read spark, um, you know, historically and understand where she's coming from, that's not at all the case. Well, how does spark move from this preoccupation with absence of what's missing from the world, the, the consequences of dualism, to art as a relation with presence? Well, my suggestion is that this is where her idea of voice comes in and sonority of poetry as a language listening to itself, listening, um, becomes so important. Because I think, like Auden, um, she's very aware of this kind of idea of um, that we live in a world where we don't listen. We've ceased to listen. And poetry helps us listen. It, it, that words 
every word is important, every word is significant. We, we can hear every word. Um, I think it also has something to do as well with her sense of her Jewish inheritance that she talks about in the Mandelbaum Goat. And she talks about the patriarchal boom. Um, Barbara Vaughan talks about the patriarchal boom of her father and the kind of um, sense of um, the incarnated word, the word flowing out of the body uh, in the Jewish tradition. I think voice as well is, is um, more it's the most mysterious of the senses. The eye is the realist and metaphysical sense par excellence. It looks on evidence before it. Sound is ambiguous. We often can't work out its source. It's ambiguously located. It blurs inner and outer. Are we listening to it outside or are we hearing it from inside? It's dynamic. It's always in movement. It suggests vitality. It conveys space as temporality. It fades out. It suggests there's something beyond an horizon um, that the eye can't reach. It brings the invisible into being. And I think her sense of voice and vocality in art, in literary art, is really important to her. Um, in sound, the unseen speaks. It's a way of opening out the world ontologically. And you get this in her first... Um, Oh, I've got to hurry up. Um, you, get, you get this in her first um, short story, The Seraph and the Zambezi, which won the Observer Short Story Competition um, in 1951, um, and which is a kind of an amazing piece of writing. Um, it was her first piece of prose, and it is very much um, a piece about sound, the physical voice, and these qualities of sonority, and their relation to face. Um, it's a strange story. It begins with a it's set in Africa where Spark was living um, in the 40s before she returned to England. Um, and um, it involves a, a character called Kramer, who's from a Baudelaire um, poem. And um, he's 150 years old. Um, and he tells the narrator. And he turns up in Africa. Uh, in the present day, and um, says he's planning to put on a nativity play and he's going to perform the part of a seraph. Um, and what happens, basically, is that as he's getting ready to perform this part of a seraph, a real seraph arrives <laughs> <laughs> and kind of throws him off the stage. Um, and the thing burns down and the, and the story ends. <clears throat> um, but it's interesting how, from the beginning, this is a story about sound. Um, and I think that it opens with a sense of, um, it invokes the familiar concept of Stimmung, or atmosphere, the idea that there's a correspondence between weather, atmosphere, and mood. Um, but here, the sound is stifled, faded, it's torpid, there's an enervating heat. And I think Spark is saying something about the sort of decadence of the romantic imagination. Don't forget Eliot, one of Eliot's main critiques was of this sense of romanticism as an inflation of um, the, the, the egotistical sublime at the expense of the kind of embodied and embedded. Um, on the third night before Christmas, I sat on the step outside my room looking through the broken mosquito wire network at the lightning in the distance. 
When an atmosphere maintains an excessive temperature for a long spell, something seems to happen to the natural noises of life. Sounds fail to carry in its usual quantity. Sound fails to carry in its usual quantity, but comes as if bound and gagged. That night, the Christmas beetles, which fall on their backs on every step with a high tic-tac, seemed to be shock-absorbed. I saw one fall, and the little bump reached my ears a fraction behind time. The noises of minor wild beasts from the bush were all hushed up too. Sometimes for a moment a shriek or cackle would hang torpidly in space. But these were unreal sounds, as if projected from a distant country, as if they were pocket torches seen through a London fog. And then at the end of the story, after the seraph has appeared and then he disappears, the story ends as the narrator and friends walk away. The thunder of the falls reached us about two miles before we reached them. We came to the cliff's edge, where opposite us, and from the same level, the full weight of the river came blasting into the gorge between. There was no sign of the seraph. Then I noticed along the whole mile of the waterfall's crest, the spray was rising higher than usual. We watched him ride the Zambezi away from us, among the rocks that looked like crocodiles and the crocodiles that look like rocks. Um, so I think it's an allegorical assertion, an embodiment of the need for a renewal and a modification of the romantic idea of the imagination through a reinvention of poetic voice. The image of the thunder roaring, heard now in advance and not lagging behind, the wind foaming the waters and hovering on the face of the waves, invokes Psalm 33, where God creates with the breath of his mouth after the apocalyptic fire. Yahweh's breath brings energizing life into the innovated scene, animating and vocalizing itself for those who stop to listen. Um, and the story ends with a reference to the deceptiveness of seeing, that rocks look like cro crocodiles keeps us vigilant, but that crocodiles look like rocks may seduce us unawares. Well, in The Comforters, I think, she takes up this idea of voice as hearing voices, inner and outer. But what's interesting about what she does with voice in that novel, and I think this is how Spark develops the idea of voice, is that Caroline's experience is of a voice like one person speaking in several tones at once. They speak in the past tense. They mock me. But careful listening reveals a plurality of voices. It was impossible to disconnect the separate voices because they came in complete concert. Only by the varying timbre could the chorus be distinguished from one voice. And I think what that um, experience of breakdown and hearing voices, um, that as she represents it in this novel, um, <clears throat> is presented as an idea of the self as both singular, but also composite. And again, this was a key kind of idea in the work of Marcel and other phenomenologists in the mid-century, the idea of intersubjectivity, derived from Husserl. Um, and I think we're probably more familiar with Sartre's idea that, you know, the self, um, <clears throat> that the self-other relationship is always an agonistic one. Um, but what Husserl had said is that we take the voices of others into ourselves. We, we're born into a time and place. We grow up in a time and place. We hear its voices within us and the voices of others. Um, but in our striving for a kind of egotistical unity, 
we, we cease to hear those voices. And I think what Spark is saying is, what art can do is open us up to the multiplicity of voice that is within us and outside us, so that we listen and we discern. And a lot of her writing is about this. And I think, instead of repressing the voices of others, and I think what, what really um, led her to think along these lines was um, she attended the Eichmann trial um, as a, a working for the observer, but um, she, she couldn't write up the trial. She was so horrified, she came back shut down and, and depressed, and, and she couldn't listen to it. And it was the incantatory monologism of Eichmann's voice that uh, appalled her. And of course, Arendt later on, uh, in The Origins of Totalitarianism, went on to talk about um, the unthinkingness um, of, of Eichmann, that his mindlessness, the fact that he couldn't hear another's voice, he couldn't hear the voice of the other inside himself. And um, Spark describes his voice as a computing machine. What was he talking about? The effect was the same in any language. The discourse was a dead mechanical tick. Even without semantic grasp of what is said, it is the sound of the voice that condemns him. It conveys his inability to think, because thinking, if it is to be reflective and ethical, is to think in and hear the voice of the other in one's own. The shattering experience of listening in through the electronic earpiece to the voice of Eichmann, this man in his glass cage, the voice interminable, self-absorbed, as monstrous as it was monologic, resonated to prompt, I think, in the Mandelbaum Gate particularly of 1965, a recognition of how much this pluralization of voice, even if it um, constitutes itself as a kind of precarious disequilibrium, um, and uh, goes against our conventional ideas of autonomy and unity and harmony, must become the fundamental ethical vehicle of her fiction. And I think it's this way in which um, the poetic listens to itself listening, as I've said before, that is so important to her. The banality of evil is a bureaucratic or mimetic monologism that cannot hear the voice of the other. It's thoughtlessness, thought as devocalized solipsism. And um, I'll just finish now because I've got too much. Um, <laughs> but um, I was going to end by, by uh, a quick reference to it. My favorite novel of Sparks is A Far Cry from Kensington, um, which it's the most sympathetic of her characters. Um, and the novel opens with her lying alone in the dark, um, listening to the past, calling up the past. Um, <clears throat> and I think that um, what Spark becomes more and more interested in, actually, is um, the idea of art as a kind of spiritual exercise that, like, um, you know, Mary Carruthers calls it um, a process of thought craft. So instead of one thing coming after another, a kind of idea of chronology, the idea is that you call up, you call up images um, from your past, you, you put them in places, um, and then a pattern emerges and you reflect and meditate on them, and, um, and, and, and you, 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 um, the inner voice is built up um, through a kind of tightening and heightening, a tonos, um, 
which brings um, spiritual insight. And I think she began to, more and more, she began to see her art as performing um, this kind of um, activity. And it's interesting, she always sets her novels in particular places. And they, the places allow moral reflection. I mean, the prime of Miss Jean Brodie is a reflection on paideia or education. Memento Mori, which, which is a sort of group of elderly people and partly set in a geriatric ward, um, is a contemplation and reflection on dying. Um, so I think she thinks of, of, of art as this establishing a place, as, as Maritain um, talks about, this sense of art being embedded in a moment and a place. Um, and it's a place that can call up the voices of its moment and put them into a pattern and re-examine them. And she has a lot of fun with this in another novel that's a favourite one of mine, which is The Girls of Slender Means, which is a kind of... Its title is a pun. These, these girls of slender means are slender means because they are materially poor and they're all looking for husbands. And they're all obsessed with whether they're slim or whether they're attractive to men. Or um, It's set in a, in a, in a, a women's hostel uh, at the very end of the war. Um, but it's also, um, again, a kind of moral reflection on the slenderness of this kind of materialism, of, of, of what's absent in this culture. And so, again, through this evocation of place, and she does it often through sound, they're all listening to radios and they're singing and the piano's playing and they're very sort of noisy novels. Um, she starts to draw out this kind of meditative pattern um, about what is absent in, in, in the modern world. Okay, I'll finish that.